Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rare Petro podcast media team. Because of you and your continued support, we actually have a new segment, the Modern Mobile Oil Field. For the rest of the series, I will be joined by digital oil field specialist and tech guru, Jeffrey Can. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for inviting me uh, to uh, participate in this. this of course, of course. Fun. How are things in Canada? How are you doing? Uh, the uh, the weather is good. The pandemic is bad. Uh, <laughs> so situation normal for summer. Same thing here, minus the weather. We're seeing a few wildfires, but hopefully we're working through the worst of that. We are excited to bring you this series as it serves as a companion to the Bible of oil and gas tech. Bits, Bites, and Barrels by, well, Jeffrey Can. Can you give the people a quick overview of what they can expect to find in the book? Sure. The, uh, the book was written with the intent to introduce the various concepts associated with this wave of digital change uh, into the, and, and, and share how they will impact the oil and gas industry. So it's been described as uh, the go-to book for anyone wishing to understand how to transform oil and gas using digital. And for younger um, uh, audiences, so young professionals in the industry, the content will feel very familiar because it, it uh, plays directly off of the, uh, the social life that we, we all lead. Uh, but for those who are experienced in the industry, it's a real eye-opener around how digital will, will affect the industry. Perfect. And like I said, this podcast will serve to be a companion to the book as we expand on the technologies discussed in a nine-episode series, Everything Willing. And actually, let me get a little POV shot. You can actually see page 30. This is what we'll be talking about. Here we've got, let's see, phone up, high production quality here in the studio. We've got this graph, technology maturity on the x-axis, impact on the industry on the y, and we will be starting in this corner and working our way back to the origin. So as you can see, top right, today we have cloud computing. That's what today's episode will kick off with. So Everyone has a general idea of what cloud computing is. You know, data goes up into the cloud, stored in the cloud. But can you give us a quick overview and explain the advantages, disadvantages, and uses within oil and gas? Oh, for sure. So uh, cloud computing, we're all very familiar with it, even if we might not personally directly uh, work in the, in the industry that provides cloud computing. But if you interact with Uber or Airbnb or Netflix or Amazon, you're, you're engaging with a computer system that is actually resident in a uh, what's called the cloud infrastructure. Uh, so cloud, the way to think about it is imagine uh, banks and banks and banks of computer servers that are connected to the internet, providing everything from uh, computer horsepower on demand for complex calculations, as well as storage of vast quantities of data. And those are the, 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 the advantages of cloud, uh, unlimited on-demand analytic horsepower for, for calculations and storing uh, the, the, uh, these enormous data sets. Uh, the, the advantage is that uh, organizations do not need to stand up their own computer infrastructure, and they don't need to constantly invest to keep that infrastructure uh, up, to, up to speed and, and uh, modernized because the cloud companies take care of that. And, and thirdly, when there is a, an urgent and immediate need to stand up some infrastructure to, to address some urgent uh, either opportunity or, a, or an incident, uh, it's far faster to stand up that infrastructure by provisioning it on the cloud than it is to order technology from a, a hardware supplier because that often takes months before it shows up. The downside, though, is, is that once your infrastructure is m migrated to the cloud, it's very, very challenging to see how you'll get it off the cloud. <laughs> so once you've got petabytes and petabytes of data stored there, moving it around becomes more of a challenge. Uh, but the advantages in general outweigh the disadvantages. It's far cheaper, it's more secure, and, and it's available on tap. 
Of course. I'm glad you mentioned just how common it is, too, because my sister owes a lot of thanks to cloud computing because she's not dependent on Netflix, but it's definitely integrated into her life. So all software, of course, isn't created equally in terms of quality or even just application. There are different services afforded by cloud computing, such as infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service. What are the differences between these services? What does that exactly mean? It sounds like a whole lot of mumbo jumbo up front, but how does it apply? Well, infrastructure in this case means uh, computer infrastructure. So servers, telecommunications support, uh, data centers. So the, the way to think about infrastructure as a service is you simply go and you purchase that as a, as a, as a service available to you. This is not that different from an, the outsourcing models of the past, except that the, the infrastructure itself, cloud infrastructure, is shared um, uh, with, uh, with many different organizations at the same time. Uh, platform as a service, though, uh, is where you may wish to engage with a, a computer offering on which you, in turn, create your business model. An example of this might be, say, uh, Airbnb. Airbnb offers a platform where us as individuals can go and, and say, rent a, 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 a unit, a, a house uh, for the weekend. But you could also build an entire business where Airbnb is actually servicing as your platform and uh, uh, potentially white labeled. Uh, this is uh, as, a, as your service. Uh, I personally uh, do this with uh, my own um, service uh, infrastructure uh, where I run training courses. It looks like I'm running them on my website, but in fact, I'm using a platform that's available on the cloud. And uh, third, software as a service is where I simply take an existing application I might have running, say it was on my own data center, and now I put it onto the cloud and run it in the cloud. Uh, this is a, a fantastic way to lower cost and, and improve performance, and, uh, uh, particularly where that software uh, may require special capabilities or services to keep it uh, up to date and, and uh, running uh, effectively at scale. So three different models and very, very common. Most organizations, when you get into the cloud world, will find themselves dealing with all three models at the mm -hmm. same time. I'm just going to take a stab in the dark, though, from what you've explained. Is oil and gas going to mostly make use of infrastructure as a service, or is it pretty equally spread among the three? So, so far, what I've seen is, is it starts with infrastructure as a service as a, just a straight cost reduction play. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll see a number of large oil and gas companies as a first move, uh, shifting their infrastructure uh, out to cloud service companies. So it starts there. Uh, the software companies, though, who offer their technology uh, principally driven against a, uh, the assumption that the, uh, uh, the buyer would have their own data center, are, are suddenly finding themselves needing to convert their technology so that it will run on the cloud. And so the, the third platform, even though we, we, we present it as infrastructure platform software, software is generally number two uh, as opposed to platform. Platform, uh, the third one is much trickier because to get to platform requires more sophistication on the part of both the buyer who's willing to purchase the services as well as the seller who is, is uh, uh, putting their business on somebody else's uh, structural uh, platform. And the industry is not quite there yet in, in using that as a widespread uh, element of its, of its operating model. All right. So like ants to honey, they find the infrastructure services and they're just dumping masses, mass amounts of data. And then their eyes are opened and they kind of see what else they can afford them. And then they're in too deep. That's it. And then, of right. course, the service companies that sell software, if you're a technology company and your, your offering is software, um, you, you discover very, very quickly that uh, once, once your customer base moves to the cloud, they expect you to move too. 
and so uh, software moves moves quite quickly into the cloud infrastructure. It's also cheaper if you're a technology company to put your technology into the cloud because you don't have to support uh, five different technical underlying technology uh, platforms: Unix and uh, IBM Plant and um, uh, SQL. You you just put it on one database and then you offer it as a cloud service. It's a lower cost option as a technology company. All righty. So lots of good technology options, but none of these solutions are free from problems and setbacks, I would imagine. Nothing is ever as nice as it sounds. So when organizing the setup of a cloud computing service, what architectural questions do you have to consider? I mean, it's easy to think that it's 100% out of your hands as soon as you select Amazon's services, but I would bet that's not the case at all. No, that's true. It's not the case. Some, some are, there's many, many uh, architectural questions that you get into, but uh, I'll just give you a couple to think about. Uh, legally, uh, on some jurisdictions, some kinds of data can't leave certain geographical boundaries by law. And so if your architecture is set up to leverage cloud infrastructure, you may need to be mindful of the fact that legally, you may not be able to put your data into the cloud it, particularly if it's going to leave your country, your province, or your state, if the rules are set up such that that's not a permitted thing to do. So architecturally, I have to think, plan and think about that. Other architectural questions that arise uh, relate to the kind of compute bandwidth that you need. For instance, if your business model is uh, to, say, provide uh, a data uh, in a complex visualization data delivered down to, um, to, to individuals in, say, their home setting, as we all find ourselves in the pandemic, that may require bandwidth and telecommunications support, which is in excess of what you might normally do if that infrastructure was just resident in an office. And so partnering up with a cloud company that can assure the delivery of that quantity of data that, the way that you're after uh, is, is, is also quite useful, uh, a consideration around, around architecture. And then there's all kinds of other elements, uh, cybersecurity, which I think we'll discuss in a, in a bit, uh, how you get support. Uh, these, all of these questions come into the, into the frame around uh, cloud strategies. And then the data, geographical boundaries, I'd never heard of that. Is that something that's pretty heavily regulated or are there a lot of loopholes with, say, a VPN accessing the cloud from outside of the boundaries, but remotely, virtually inside, or is it not as muddled as I might think? Uh, no, it is as muddled as you might think. <laughs> it is not. It is not clear cut, and because governments can change the rules uh, at a moment's notice, uh, the uh, the, the uh, requirements um, uh, you have to invest quite a bit of energy to stay on top of these requirements. Uh, as, as an example, some kinds of customer data, health data, would be another good example. Uh, customer data, financial data, but in the oil and gas industry, subsurface and geologic information. Uh, particularly for those uh, countries where the, the the main value of that nation is tied very much to how much oil it produces and it's mm -hmm. the characteristics of its reservoir, the, the governments may very, be very clear and say that data cannot leave our country wow. and for very good reasons. Uh, so uh, the, you have to stay on top of the rules so that you know what, what you're allowed to ship out of country and what you're not allowed to ship out of country. Mm -hmm. Well, cloud computing, it's nothing new and it's probably so common. I see it as a buzzword at this point. A lot of people have taken advantage of it. What about oil and gas? I mean, I know Hess made that jump pretty recently to shift much of their work to the cloud, but it seems that change, as we talk about time and time again, rolls pretty slowly when it comes to these major and mid-cap companies. When I was doing the research for my book, I, I, I came head-to-head -head with this uh, attitude about, uh, about the industry and uh, the cloud computing industry and its ability to service the needs of the oil and gas sector. But in 2017, uh, one of the super majors in Europe ran a 
uh, a trial, if you like, to test the capabilities of cloud computing in 2017. So this is three years ago now. Uh, the test they ran was to uh, dump a, a bunch of their subsurface data into a cl to cloud, various cloud companies and, and then have the cloud companies try to process that data. If you go back in time, oil and gas companies, particularly the super majors, were the biggest buyers of supercomputers in the world because it was, you needed the supercomputers to do the computations to do the modeling. What this super major discovered was that the cloud computing companies, as back, far back as three years ago, were able to match the ability of, of their internal supercomputer data centers to be able to process the same data. That's when the light switch went on three years ago, that the era of oil and gas companies feeling like they needed to own and manage their own compute infrastructure for such delicate tasks as subsurface data processing was no longer a, a viable strategy. And that's what's unlocked the migration to the cloud. Uh, it, it, so it is, uh, it is well underway. M many uh, super majors are moving um, to move their uh, data and infrastructure to the cloud. Uh, there's still lots of barriers and roadblocks and there's still a very, very long way to go. So we're just at the very early stages of this wave. But there's no question, it's, 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 it would appear to be unstoppable at this point. Unstoppable, love to hear that. And then was that shift mainly a function of price or was it just convenience and the space it afforded if they didn't have all of this data processing stuff on their facilities? Well, in, in 2017, it was absolutely a question of capability, not price. Because prior to that point, the, uh, the amount of money that oil and gas companies were prepared to invest to do subsurface data processing um, was uh, very, very substantial. Uh, and uh, the reason for that, of course, is oil and gas is so valuable. Uh, so the, 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 the gap between how much you're going to pay to process it versus the value of the resource if you do process it uh, was so great that it just made no sense to even worry about owning your own infrastructure. However, by 2017, it became clear that not only could you uh, uh, get the cal uh, computational horsepower you needed on tap in the cloud, but you could do it at a dramatically lower price point and at higher levels of security. And so at that point, the equation tipped over and, and it became very compelling to, to shift. Now it's a money question. It's like not, it used to be capability, now mm -hmm. is money. It is so much cheaper to do things in the cloud that it makes no sense, literally, these days to continue to hold on to a, uh, a supercomputer-based or heavy-duty infrastructure uh, in, inside an oil company. It's, it's very clearly time now to move everything to the cloud. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned that in the earlier chapters of your book. Is it Moore's Law, if I'm not mistaken, where things are going to get, well, much more efficient and eventually cheaper technology-wise to where it's going to become a standard. Like you say, it's unstoppable. It's unstoppable, yeah. There are two laws that I, I sketch out in the book. One I name quite explicitly, the other I do not. But the, the first law, as you touch on, is, is Moore's Law, named after Gordon Moore, who identified the phenomenon that over time, some things demonstrate an exponential rate of change. And that could be capability going up or costs coming down or combination of the two. Uh, he noted it in the density of transistors on a circuit board. We're all very familiar with Moore's law now because we see it <laughs> in viral growth rates, right? The uh -huh. pandemic is growing virally. It's, we call it viral growth, but in, in fact, it's following Moore's law. Mm -hmm. If you do the math in Moore's law, it's actually a 40% compounded annual growth rate. Okay. That's what it equates to mathematically. Now, most businesses, if you are doing compounded annual growth rate of 5%, you're feeling pretty darn good. But 40%. <laughs> 40%. That's something, that's not anything to sneeze at. That's significant. 
It is. The second law is Robert Metcalf's law. So Robert Metcalf was a uh, researcher uh, at the time when Margaret Thatcher was deregulating the British uh, telecommunications industry. And his question was, what is the value of a network? And he identified that the value, the equation is n squared, where n is the number of nodes on the network. Now, what that means is that if you have a network and you connect up multiple participants in that network, the bigger the network is, the greater the value by a factor of n squared. Mm -hmm. Now, what what does this mean for for oil and gas? It means that as the the drive to build networks, that can be cloud computing, computers in the cloud, or the uh, internet connectivity between businesses uh, to enable things like new business models, uh, that that Moore's law and Metcalf's law combined are what create this uh, hyper growth rate uh, in the uh, in the digital world. Oil and gas has never really taken advantage of these two laws because we're driven much more by physics and chemistry, steel and cement. But uh, digital builds on these laws, and uh, so the shift in oil and gas is is to figure out how do we change the business model so that it can harness the economic impact of Moore and Metcalf, M and M, if you like. All right. I want to pitch a hypothetical to you then using those laws. I mean, as things become exponentially cheaper and exponentially more effective at processing data and companies are working just to add more and more nodes to their network to make it that much better, what is the ideal future for oil and gas? Is it a big international database or probably not so much because those NOCs, like you mentioned, would that be a national security risk? Where does it go? Well, I, I don't think the, the future has been really laid out in a nice, neat, orderly pattern for us to, uh -huh. to follow. Uh, so I'm, I, I, I honestly don't know what it's going to look like. But there are a few trend lines that look uh, very, very crisp to me. One is that the oil and gas industry will e ever more embrace uh, cloud computing and move more and more of its compute needs and infrastructure data into the cloud. That trend line looks unstoppable. That then in turn unlocks new business models, but we don't know yet what those new business models might actually look like. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, there's some hints. Uh, as an example, uh, and, and this relates to um, uh, the adoption of um, uh, blockchain technology uh, in, in the automotive industry. Uh, so you might say, well, how, what's that got to do with oil and gas? Well, oil and gas sells gasoline into the automotive industry. Yeah. We're big buyers of, uh, we're big sellers of product into transportation. Uh, if we connect up cars on using blockchain to create uh, trusted uh, autonomous actors in a transportation network, we fundamentally change how much gasoline we consume. Mm -hmm. There are studies that show that if you were able to displace all taxis in New York with a fleet of robotic autonomous Uber vehicles driving by themselves, all of the transportation requirement for all of New York City could be met with just 8,000 cars. For all now, of New York City? For all of New York City. So if you, if you take that, that mathematics and you extend it out, you can see that if we, if we move from a, a current world in New York City where, where there are hundreds of thousands of cars mm -hmm. to one where 8,000 satisfy all demand for all transportation, uh, then you very quickly get to a point where, well, the demand for oil and gas is going to, is going to decline and, because we won't need that kind of, that kind of uh, transportation uh, plan. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you enable that? Well, you'd have to have some way to connect up all of these vehicles and, and, um, and, 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 and deliver that, that transportation service. How are you going to do that without things like cloud computing? Mm 
to, mm -hmm. to allow you to do things like uh, transact and bill and track vehicles and so forth. It's, it's not conceivable that you could do it under our current uh, infrastructure yeah. play. So from what we've seen so far, clearly ex extends to other sectors such as transportation, like you mentioned. But in terms of oil and gas specifically, it seems right now it may be better suited for upstream. Can we expect it to expand to retail and transportation soon, or will most of the data and use remain centered around production and exploration? It, 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 it kind of depends. Uh, and I know that's not a very satisfactory <laughs> answer, but it does, it does depend. Uh, as an example, because cloud um, costs have fallen so low, it's economically now quite compelling, regardless of where you're at in the industry, whether you're midstream or downstream or a pipeline or a refinery, kind of doesn't matter. You, you, you can move your infrastructure to the cloud. Mm -hmm. And uh, so cost is going to be the driver as opposed to, you know, does it make more industrial sense to be on the cloud one way or the other? Cost kind of takes care of that equation. Um, as an example, even in the refinery context, there's a, sp a specific function that refineries go through called the using what they call the linear program. It is the LP is is the mathematical model that defines how to run your refinery to maximize your the outcome you're after, which could be margin or meeting a product demand or what have you. And um, the uh, in the current world, I can only run my LP once because I'm doing it on my own compute infrastructure in my, at my refinery. But in a cloud world, you could actually run that LP dozens and dozens of times simultaneously. And that changes fundamentally how many scenarios you can play with on how to run your refinery, even down to where you could run the LP on a cargo by cargo basis or barrel by barrel basis. This changes how you think about refinery economics, oh, 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 literally overnight. Yeah. Uh, that, that means that refineries, even though you'd say, well, why would a refinery be on the cloud computing? That alone could be reason enough for the, for the refineries to start to shift over to, to cloud, let alone yeah. cost. Oh, so this is, not, this is not really an upstream story or a downstream story or midstream story. It is an industrial story. It's just a matter of time and to how yeah. far it spreads. All right. And then you said changing overnight. And I kind of want to touch on that in the context of current events. So... Like you said, I love your analogy of some people, they are hedgehogs where as soon as they are projected to any sense of change, they curl up in a ball and fight it and avoid it. But has the time frame for cybersecurity, data, cloud computing, all of these things, has it changed as a result of COVID-19? I imagine it likely accelerated transitions or forced people to consider cloud computing as a solution in this work from home remote access era. Is this true? Um, I, I'm not sure I would characterize the pathway as that linear. Mm -hmm. In other words, my employees, uh, to work from home, they have to have cloud computing. It doesn't quite work that way uh, because you can enable your employees to get access to your corporate infrastructure and your computer systems um, through gateways without actually having your backend in the cloud. So the, the reality of the pandemic is the pandemic doesn't drive cloud computing. What drives cloud computing is new business models and lower cost, greater capability, improved cybersecurity, better performance, um, faster capital execution, a whole bunch of other drivers, not just uh, in the pandemic. I don't think there are very many oil companies who have started a, I might be wrong because I haven't heard of any, but I, it's, it, it does not strikes me as uh, because you have a pandemic, that's what drives you to push your infrastructure to the cloud. It's, it's not quite that linear. Mm -hmm. Now, that does not mean that, that some companies will look at their existing back-end infrastructure and realize, holy cow, we can't deliver our business because we are structurally set up as if everybody's working in an office. 
and no amount of finessing is going to fix that. Those companies may then embark on a cloud strategy because it will fix their that, that sort of structural problem that they've got. But, but for the most part, I would say the pandemic does not linearly compel you mm-hmm. uh, to go to uh, cloud computing. I guess that's just me wishing for a perfect world, huh? <laughs> well, your perfect world is the cost and performance curve have, have shifted fundamentally. The economic calculation and uh, so uh, your perfect world's already here. The pandemic is, is helping move it along, but it is not the, it's not the driver. All right. Well, let's say uh, we'll take it outside the context of a perfect world, but I am a new exploration and production company, refining company, midstream, whatever, stuck in my old-fashioned ways, looking to keep up with the rest of the competition. If I'm looking to pursue cloud computing, where would be a good place to start my transition as an executive? Let's assume I'm technically very literate, very literate. It implies improvements in considering data cyber aspects, recruited talent, and agility in navigating and processing this tech, but where can it first be planted? I mean, that's a lot of stuff to consider. Uh, it is, and the where I would advise organizations to to start is to uh, go and visit some peer companies to see wh- what they've targeted and tackled because there's no there's no real good logic that says you need to kind of, kind of discover all of this on your own. So I would start with where's the peer group gone and what have they done? What have they done first as a, as a as a driver? What I what you'll typically see is that the, the uh, first question you have to address is. Uh, of, uh, if you move your data to the cloud, not, not necessarily all the computing that you'd want to do, but just the data itself, uh, there, most organizations have a lot of what I call rot data. So it's redundant, it's obsolete, or it's trivial. Why would you move rotten data to the cloud? What, what, what would be the point? So a, a, a step ahead of that is to stare hard at the data holdings and then just ask the question, where, where is it most important that we, we uh, gain an, some sort of advantage because of the cloud by moving our data there? Uh, and that may mean having a rot strategy. How do, I, how do I deal with that redundant, obsolete, and trivial data? How do I get rid of that as a, as a first step? That may drive you to say, well, in order to get to that, I need to actually have a data strategy. So I might start with having some, uh, some, some advisors support me or, or my uh, computer uh, team, my, my IT team and my OT team, uh, help me understand where the, oper- the, the data that has the greatest value, where, where does that data reside? And it's that data that I then target as uh, cr- the first step in my, in my cloud program, uh, that I move that to the cloud. All right, so back to the hypothetical. I've stripped all the rotten data I found a great way to sort through it and organize it on a cloud computing system. What about the rest of my team? How can I get them accustomed in terms of changing workflows and traditional processes? Is there going to be a lot of new training or is it similar to some of the transitions we've seen in the past and maybe a lot smoother than someone would imagine? The, the talent strategy is actually the, one of the hardest part of the puzzle pieces here to put into place. And the reason for that is that the educational institutions who are churning out the graduates that have the expertise that the oil industry needs uh, have not yet reconfigured their curriculum to generate the capability that the industry needs in the volume that it needs and in the, in the locations where it's needed, uh, where those individuals are able to bring to bear both the industrial know-how they, they've learned, that is how the oil and gas industry world, world works, and the digital world and how that works. Generally, those are two solitudes. So I, I go to my 
um, uh, petroleum engineering school and I go to my computer science school. And they're, they're not merged and blended together yet. What this really means is that if you wish to embark on the adoption of many of these digital tools, you're going to have to figure out how do I blend those two together? And that may mean going to an industry that's well ahead of oil and gas, like financial services or telecommunications or entertainment, and uh, getting those individuals with that background, who don't understand oil and gas, by the way, but they may understand data science and data management and digital. And then you marry those up with your domain experts and, and you, you create that collaborative relationship where those, those, those folks work together uh, to tackle the challenges associated with digital adoption. Yeah. That's the pathway that I see uh, uh, industry is going to have to go down simply because there is a, a huge shortage of people who understand this, who are already inside the petroleum in industry. No, I'd have to agree with you. I mean, I just graduated myself and a lot of the work, uh, data reduction we did with Excel spreadsheets. I imagine yeah. we're reaching a point where that's not going to cut it anymore. So we have to marry, like you said, the technical context with the know-how to process that data and those teams are going to be the most effective. Exactly do you, right. Do you see someone in the future, maybe petroleum programs adjusting to match that goal or maybe just data science reaching a point where they'll train contextually so they can go into an, an industry making maybe an engineer obsolete? Uh, yeah, very good question. I don't know how the uh, educational institutions will play this out. Uh, it's, uh, uh, but I can imagine the conversation internally at, 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 in an educational institution where you say to the petroleum engineering school, uh, which is already a jam-packed four-year program, which you know is hugely challenging for anyone to do, uh, saying to the uh, leaders and owners of that curriculum, you're going to have to either you have to make room for new content. Uh, what are they going to jettison? And, and say, well, we're not going to do that anymore. It's tough to pick and choose there. Very, very challenging to pick and choose. And so I think the, the curriculums are going to have to re reconfigure uh, to create space for these, these courses so that the students can learn uh, how, how to take advantage of these tools and marry them up with the domain knowledge. Uh, there's also the, the potential for the courses themselves. So imagine you're doing a, a reservoir um, a modeling course. Uh, it's already very technical, and, and, uh, uh, but the instructor may be asked to inject digital concepts and thinking into that curriculum. Well, that requires the course instructor to become digitally smart uh, ahead of that. That's a, that's a, a track that, that also needs to be uh, laid out so that we can achieve that. Mm -hmm. you, you, once you start to think about it in these sort of sweeping terms, there's, there's great compelling industrial logic here, but the actual execution of it is going to take a great deal of time. No, oh, of course. The future of cloud storage and mass data computing is going to be beautiful. It's just a matter of getting everyone there. <laughs> but when it gets there. Back to my hypothetical. I'm I'd like to talk security. I mean, I know a lot of this data, as you mentioned, can be very sensitive and even a question of national security for some people. Will cybersecurity afforded by cloud computing be greater or less than the quality that a company making the transition may already be accustomed to? In, in the main, uh, the cloud computing companies are, are more secure than individual companies in the main. And it's not exclusively, it's not 100% accurate to say that all the time because there are lots of examples of cloud uh, companies and cloud services that have been penetrated by hackers. But uh, once a certain kinds of vulnerabilities are detected within one cloud company, it's m very, very quick uh, to, for that information to make its way around to all of the other cloud service companies to patch 
the, uh, the, the problem area up. And because of the, the, the business model is so dependent on uh, reliable uh, services and reliable support, the cloud companies are highly motivated to stay on top of the patch requirements. It is, uh, it, and, and so that as a result, they are superior in that regard. Uh, whereas the individual company might have just 10, 10 IT professionals supporting all of the computer infrastructure, and maybe there's a part-time cyber professional. It's very easy to see how that company might be unable to keep pace uh, with the with the uh, amount of cyber activity that's going on out there. So uh, from my vantage point, I would place a higher level of confidence in the cloud computing companies to provide the adequate uh, cyber support that, that I need for my, my company. All right. But corporate governance, I've adopted it. I feel safe. I feel secure. I'm using it. Things are going great. But like those laws you mentioned, technology will only get cheaper and more effective. How can it be assured that the importance of this tech officer's decisions are not overlooked as the cost of the service is reduced? Does this catch a bad rap for its comparatively low cost in the cash flow sheet? Well, I, what you're touching on, though, is, is a, a really important question around um, technology governance in organizations. And I, this is actually not limited or restricted to cloud, to be honest. It's actually a far larger question around, uh, around governance. Uh, but but in, in general, it, it, uh, uh, the leading organizations uh, take a much more broader view of governance over its investments in technology and infrastructure. And that includes investments in digital. Um, you know, as, uh, as one of my clients used to say, a problem shared is a problem solved. And so the, the, a governance structure where you take a specific problem, such as how do I maintain pace with technical advancement, you engage more broadly in your organization to talk through the, what has to happen. Uh, it means you surface answers better and faster and with greater, um, greater agility than those organizations that lack that governance and just leave it in the hands of one or two individuals. So good governance structures are, are really important in this, in this new digital world. And then we've got a whole lot of energy professionals and students that do listen to this podcast who may want to better position themselves to understand these technologies. I mean, outside of buying this book, of course, should they pursue <laughs> specialization or just a general understanding of what cloud computing can enable? What risks should they be aware of? Well, to learn more about it, um, they, all of the cloud companies offer uh, some variation of uh, training and uh, awareness building for what their offerings can actually do. They're highly motivated to attract talent to support cloud infrastructure because that creates the demand for cloud infrastructure. One of the blocks that prevents many organizations from advancing with cloud is that because they can't find the talent that knows how that infrastructure actually works. So the cloud companies are working to solve that by creating the, the, the training programs and the curriculum and the awareness building. So the fastest way to get up to speed on this for career protection, uh, and certainly the least expensive way, um, is, to, is to go on to uh, the cloud service companies' websites and their offerings and take the, uh, generally speaking, low cost or free awareness programs that they offer so that you can, you can start to uh, internalize how that uh, technology works uh, how it affects your industry or your part of the industry, given that you know uh, uh, our listeners may be on upstream, midstream, or downstream, is far more nuanced. 
because as I say, they, in the upstream, it may be about subsurface data management, whereas in the downstream, it might be about um, uh, convenience store automation. So uh, in that case, you have to be more surgical around where you learn about how cloud in, impacts your industry. But uh, it would start with the basics, like, uh, which, which you can get from most cloud companies. All right. That's some great advice and probably advice I'll be taking advantage of myself because I was not familiar with that before. But I think that hit all the points that I wanted to bring up about cloud computing. I mean, you as the expert, is there anything else you'd like to highlight? I really would just underscore a couple of um, what I would describe as critical observations about cloud. There's no U-turn ahead. This is not a question of um, taking a risk that somehow uh, if, I, if I embrace cloud, I've, I've created a risk for myself. There's a far bigger risk by not embracing uh, cloud. Uh, so there's, there's the first point. The, the, there's no U-turn ahead. Standing pat is not a good strategy. Uh, on the on the other side, though, the upside, which we haven't talked about uh, the, as much, but you know, what what gains do you get from it besides from cost reduction and so forth? It's the enablement of new business models, which is the big prize here. And uh, so, uh, for uh, young people who are listening, as well as an, you know, industry executives who are, are tuned into this, uh, that, to my mind, is the biggest prize as well as the biggest risk. And 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 much of it is going to be enabled by cloud computing. All right. Well, I think that concludes the first episode of the Modern Mobile Oil Field, then. You can follow the development on this podcast by following both Rare Petro and Jeffrey Can on LinkedIn. And in addition, you can find this podcast between SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, but I'm sure you're already listening on one of those platforms, so I'll let you keep at it. Finally, I cannot recommend this book enough. I mean, sure, I had to read it to be able to be literate for these interviews, but it is fantastic. We do get into some nitty-gritty details on the podcast, but there is a great broad understanding in bits, bites, and barrels. This podcast makes a good companion, but it will never replace the book. Jeffrey, where can our listeners find themselves a copy? Uh, it's available on many online bookstores. At least 100 uh, online resellers uh, carry the book. Uh, it is print-on-demand, uh, which is a digital innovation, uh, as, it, as it turns out, <laughs> uh, which was very appealing to me since yeah, when I was putting the book together. Uh, but it's print-on-demand, which means you can't buy it in a bookstore. You, you, you really only can order it online. And once you place your order, it gets printed. Uh, there's no inventory anywhere in the system for, for the book. Uh, so that's, that's how you get it. You go into Amazon or, or some say your favorite online bookseller, wherever you are in the, in the world. There's also an audio version of it on Audible and uh, Amazon and iTunes. And uh, there's a soft copy of it on a whole uh, other range of platforms if you want to use a Kindle reader or some other way to, 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 to uh, get access to the, to the book. So there's lots of ways. It's, and it's not very expensive. It's, uh, the e-version the e is, is $10. So if, you're, if, you're, if you can't spend $10, the price of two cups of coffee, you can see how a, a trillion-dollar industry is about to be impacted by digital. <laughs> it's money well spent. Oh, of course. So that wraps up the podcast, everybody. Like he mentioned, let's prevent ourselves from becoming obsolete. Let's stay with the movement because it's only a matter of time and keep learning together. So until we see you next time, first of all, thank you for joining us, Jeffrey, and everybody, take care. Bye for now.